Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? 1 Corinthians 5. Well, do you remember the old folk tale, The Emperor's New Clothes? Remember that story? Maybe you read that when you're a child, and, or maybe your parents read that to you. And that story tells about how this deceiver came into a kingdom, and he pretended to be a tailor. Remember, he told the emperor that he could make the emperor some new clothes out of this special material. And this special material could only be seen by people who were wise. And and the wise people saw this material as the most beautiful material ever. And the foolish people couldn't see the material at all. And so the tailor offered to make an outfit for the king. And so he did that. And he uh, spun this outfit that was actually nothing. When the emperor came and he saw the loom and saw everything, he, he saw nothing on it. But he didn't want to admit that he couldn't see it. And so remember the emperor pretended like he saw the the materials. And then the day came when the emperor was to get his new clothes. And the tailor came in and he held up nothing. But the emperor wanted to pretend like he could see it because he doesn't want to be the fool. And so he takes off his clothes and puts on the new clothes. And and of course, there was no clothes. And then he went out to uh, go in the parade. And he's in the parade and everyone else sees the emperor and everyone's you know, noticing that he doesn't have clothes, and, but no one wants to say anything because, you know, the emperor could uh, take your head off, and so, and they're kind of too proud because they don't want to be the fool either, until this little child in the back cries out and says, the emperor has no clothes, and then everyone realizes it's true. The emperor was still too proud, and he marched back to the, the palace, and, and the point of the story is that the emperor had this pride, and he was truly the fool, wasn't he? When I, when I was thinking about our text here this morning, that, that uh, story came to my mind. There are times in the church when there is a member who is deceived. He's deceived by Satan, and he plays the part of the fool. And, and he falls into sin, continues in sin, and lives a foolish life. And, and those in the church see that. They see he's playing the, the role of a fool, but, but they don't say anything, anything to him. They pretend like everything's okay. They pretend like nothing is going on. They, they normalize sin. They normalize unrepentance. And our scripture here this morning is that little voice that speaks out and says, the emperor has no clothes. The church is not pure. There's someone in the church who's living the life of a fool, and, and they need to repent and turn to Christ. And so this text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a, is a call to the church to pursue purity, to to pursue purity as a church, to maintain purity as a church, because Christ died for us to be his pure church. The question we asked last week from this text was, how do we ensure, how do we maintain, how do we pursue purity in the church? And the text really gave four answers, or I should say I found four answers in the text, And the first answer to that question is we need to understand God's view of the problem that pollutes the church. And so let me give a little overview of the the first two points that we covered last week. And first, we we said that in each of these points, there's an individual aspect and there's a corporate, a church aspect. 
And so what's the problem that pollutes the church? Well, the individual's problem, particularly this individual in the church, was that he was unrepentant. He was an unrepentant church member who was continuing in sin. Look at verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. The word of God says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, the unbelievers. And here's the sin, for a man has his father's wife. And so the first problem was with a man who was living in open sin. He was not repenting of this sin. And what was his sin? He was sleeping with his stepmother. And everybody knew it. And this man claimed to be a believer. He claimed that Jesus was his Lord, but he wasn't living as if Jesus was his Lord. He was walking in darkness while claiming to be in the light. But really, there are two problems in the church, right? Not just this man, but how the church responded as well. The church didn't deal with this man's sin. So the second problem was that the, that the church in pride tolerated sin. They tolerated this man's sin. Look at verse number 2. 1 Corinthians 5, 2, the word of the Lord says, And you, speaking to the church, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him, the man who sinned, who has done this, be removed from among you. And the church was arrogant and, and prideful by not dealing with this man's sin. Instead of being arrogant and ignoring his sin, they should have mourned over his sin and cried over his sin. And then, and then when he didn't repent, they should have removed him from the church membership and fellowship. I think when we read a text of scripture like this, we can say, oh, that's terrible. Can you believe a church like that did that? Why would they allow someone like that to stay in the church? You know, I think when we, talk in, when we talk in theory, it's easy to complain and to criticize like that. But, you are, but I think it's actually a lot harder when we're talking about real people. I mean, this guy was a real person. We don't, we don't know him, right? But he was a real person. And it's harder when, when that person has a name and he may be a friend or he's a family member. Right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, oh, can you believe that church over in that state did that? That's terrible. But then when it comes home and it's like, oh, this is the guy that lives down the street from me. This is the guy who fixes my whatever. This is my friend for the past 20 years. That's when it becomes a lot more difficult, doesn't it? And so here I want us to remember that here, there's a, this was a man that was a friend in the church. They ate with him. He was, he was a part of the ministry of the church possibly neighbors, maybe this was the, the mixer, Mr. Fix-It in the church. Like, this was the guy to go to. You don't really want to get rid of him. What's the big deal if he stays in the church? So the question for the church is, are we going to humble ourselves before God and do the right thing? Doing the right thing is, is difficult, but it's always best. It brings glory to God, and it's best for God's people. And, and the second, the second answer to this question of how do members pursue purity in the church is to follow God's solution that purifies the church. And again, there's an individual solution, and then there's a corporate, a church solution. And for the individual, the solution is to repent and believe the gospel. And so that's the answer for this man. They want him to, 
They should want him to turn from his sin and believe in Jesus Christ, to follow Christ. And that's not just the solution for him. That's the solution for all of us, right? I mean, we are to be living a life of repentance and faith. Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And so throughout our life, we continue to submit to him in that way. The wonderful blessing of the church is that you don't have to do that on your own. It's not like you, you leave this place and then you go back to your house and the rest of the week you have to live for Christ on your own. We should be involved in each other's lives on Sunday morning, but also throughout the week, praying for each other, encouraging each other, loving each other. And so, so we should be there for each other. But, w- but when someone in our church decides to say, you know, I live for the Lord, I, I follow the Lord, but they actually don't in their life. They're, in other words, a hypocrite. What are we supposed to do? Well, the same thing that we should do when we live a life of hypocrisy. What, what should we do? Repent of that. Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm a hypocrite. And then we call them to do the same, to repent of that. And that person continues in that sin. What's the solution for the church? Well, the church's solution is to remove the unrepentant member from membership and from fellowship. Look at verse 2. Look at the very end of verse 2. And notice Paul's instruction for the church. Verse 2, the end of verse 2, let him who has done this, what? Be removed from among you. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I, that's Paul, am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you, that's the church, are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, what are you to do? Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then look down to verse 13, the very last verse of this chapter. He says, purge the evil person from among you. So, So notice those phrases that instruct the church to to practice what we call church discipline, or sometimes it's called church restoration because that's the goal, or maybe even excommunication is a common phrase out there. But notice those phrases. Verse 2, remove him from among you. Verse 3, pronounce judgment on the one. Verse 5, deliver this man to Satan. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. In order to maintain and pursue purity in the church, we, we plead with each other to, to keep following Christ. And when someone veers off and they do something that's according to their flesh and they, and they don't want to repent, we say, no, well, please come back to Christ. And we go individually, we go as a group. But eventually it might come to the place where we have to remove that person from fellowship and from membership. And, and, and friends in church, that is God's clear directive here, right? I mean, I'm just going to say this, probably no pastor... Um, would come up with this idea on their own, <laughs> right? No one wants to remove someone from membership. Like, you want more people to come, not to leave. But this is what God has called us to do. And where did Paul get this idea from? And how did Paul come up with this idea? Well, this is really what Christ taught. Would you do this with me? Would you turn back to Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus taught these same principles. He was the one that came up with the idea of the church. He's the, he, wa, he is the one who prays to the Father for the purity of the church. He intercedes for us 
that we will be sanctified by the truth. And what we're going to see here in Matthew 18 is some of the same principles. First of all, this text deals with the local church. This passage deals with church members who are in covenant with one another. This deals with church members taking up the responsibility to love one another, to, to encourage one another to follow Christ. Look in verse 15, Matthew 18, 15. I'm actually going to read out of the Legacy, Legacy Standard Bible because I like the translation for this. Verse 15, now if your brother sins, so brother, Christian, someone within the church family, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the goal. Do you want that person to turn back to Christ? But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So again, you see that this is speaking about the local church. This is speaking about brothers and sisters in Christ who, who love one another enough to be able to go talk to each other about their soul and, and to seek to restore people in fellowship with God. But, but if a person continues down the path of unrepentance, they don't recognize their sin or they don't want to turn from it. Verse 17 gives us the instruction. Verse 17 says, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to what? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you, the church, as the Gentile and the tax collector. So again, you can see some of these same themes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, if you keep reading in, in, Act, in uh, Matthew 18, you can see Jesus continues to talk about this. Look at Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you, well, who's the you right there? Well, it's the church, right? Because he's talking about that in verse 17. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What's Jesus teaching here? He, he's speaking about church discipline. And he taught that the church has the authority to make judgments about the spiritual condition of believers in the church. Now, wait a second. Doesn't God only have the authority to, to make judgments about the spiritual condition of people in the church? The answer is yes. He has the authority to do that. But here what we see is Christ has delegated that authority to the church. And, and so on one hand, when someone comes to Christ, we, the church, baptize them. And what we're recognizing and what they're testifying to is that Christ has saved them. Christ, the Father, the Spirit, the triune God, has saved them. That's confirmed in heaven. That's settled in heaven, I should say. And then it's confirmed on earth. When we baptize someone and they're involved in, or they come into church membership, we're saying this is a person who's walking with the Lord, they're, they're saved, and they desire to continue to follow Christ. And when a ch the church removes someone from membership, we're just following what heaven has already decided. In fact, that's what it says in verse 18. Notice that. Notice the, the verb tenses here. Whatever you, whatever the church binds on earth, shall have been or already has been bound in heaven. The idea is not that the church says, this is what we're going to do. God, follow our instruction. It's that we're saying, this is what's already decided in heaven, and the church, we're going to confirm that's the case, right? 
church membership and baptism doesn't save a person. It's not like we're doing this and we're saying, hey, by the way, now you're saved. Not at all, right? But it does confirm, it, show, it shows, yes, we believe this is true about this person. We've talked to them. They've give, they're given their testimony. They want to follow Christ. They're going to be baptized. We're going to have them be in church membership. And that's actually the role the church has. And then when a person walks away from the, the Lord and they decide to follow their own desires, they don't live as, the, as if Christ is truly the Lord of their life. The church then removes them from membership. And again, it's not us saying, Lord, this is what's going to happen. It's like God says, you know what? I'm already seeing their heart. I already see they're unrepentant. And so the church just confirms that's the case. And they are therefore publicly presented as a person who's unrepentant. So go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because you'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll see this in verse number 4 where Paul writes, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, and he speaks there about that assembly. Really, I think that's the, the last step of, of church discipline. That's the last resort. It's not the first resort. It's the last resort where we say, listen, we're assembling as a church. We've, we've pleaded this with this person. We've gone to this person. And in the end, this person wants to follow their own sinful desires. They don't want to follow Christ. Even if they say something different, in the end, their life has shown this to be the case. And therefore, we as a church are going to confirm that this person is not living the life of a believer. And sometimes that takes months. Sometimes that might be within a week, really. I mean, it depends on how serious the issue is. And then the third reason, or the third way, I should say, how do we pursue purity? We trust God's reason why we must purify the church. And just like the other points, there's a, a reason for the individual, and there's a reason for the church. And the reason for the individual, the reason we practice church discipline, is to spiritually rescue the unrepentant member. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, you, that's the church, are to deliver this man, the unrepentant man, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A person who lives in sin and is unrepentant has already turned his heart over to Satan. And a life given over to Satan is painful. It's destructive. And so when the church applies church discipline by removing someone from fellowship and from membership, we are publicly declaring that this person has chosen to give their life over to Satan. And the purpose of church discipline is so that person will feel the pain of their sin and they will then turn back to Christ. Many people hear this kind of teaching or maybe they hear that churches do this, and they think, well, that's, that's, that's not really a good way to do it, is it? I mean, if you have someone in the church, and, and they're not repentant, and they're living in sin, and wouldn't it be better for them just to stay in the church? I mean, don't you want them to be under the preaching of God's word? Wouldn't it be better if we influence them, we kept encouraging them to follow Christ? I mean, that's the logic people have, right? It's like, if they just stay in the church, then they're under God's word, and, and they're under our influence. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that a good thing? The answer is no. And why is that? Because it's not what God tells us to do. 
It might make logical sense in your mind, okay? But God is the God of logic, and actually he has another directive, and his directive is this right here. And the truth is sometimes God uses pain. Sometimes he uses your own pain, the, the pain of, or I should say the pain of your own sin. He uses pain sometimes to turn hearts back to him. Sometimes God actually allows Satan to destroy, allows Satan to bring pain so that person will see how horrible it is to live under the rule of Satan. Think about the prodigal son. Let me ask some questions about the prodigal son. Did the father love his son? Absolutely, right? He loved his son. Did the son go out and make foolish, even potentially deadly choices? Yes. I mean, he, he squandered his money. He could have actually endangered his life. He went to a faraway country. Did the father stop him? I mean, I think he begged with him and pleaded with him not to go. I, mean, I, de I definitely think he probably tried to convince him how foolish this was. But in the end of the day, the father did let him go, didn't he? And why did he do that? Well, sometimes the loving thing to do is to allow someone to experience the pain of their own choices. If you read that story, at the end of the story, or close to, close to the end of the story, it says that the prodigal son came to the end of himself. And that was the best thing for him. Because as he sat there in that pigsty, he looked up to heaven and he thought back to home and he thought, my sin has ruined my life. And then he ran back to his father. And his father was there with his arms open, ready to forgive him. And sometimes the most loving thing to do is allow someone to feel the pain of their sin so they will, like the prodigal son, turn back to the Lord. And that's what he's talking about here. In fact, that's actually what happened to this man. Eventually, he was removed from the church, and he repented, and then he was, then he was restored to membership and fellowship. And notice the goal at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day when Christ comes and that's the true day of revelation. Those who, who truly have been following Christ in repentance and faith, they will be shown to be ones that are children of light, children of God. And those who are fake, those who are living the hypocritical life, will be, will be seen to be ones who are not true followers of Christ. And so the goal of this is, hey, hey we want to help purify the church, but really encourage people to follow Christ so they can be saved in the day of the Lord. I think there's some questions that we probably should ask ourselves as a church. Probably the most important one is for all of us to ask, am I going to be revealed on the day of the Lord as a true follower of Christ? Right? Like the purpose of church discipline is to love people enough to have them consider that question. Like the worst thing you can do for a person in a church like this is say, you know, live your life, figure it out. If you go to hell, you go to hell, whatever. That's not very loving. We actually want to say, follow Christ. And if someone says, I don't want to do that, we want to say, well, there's going to be a day when it's going to be revealed. And if you continue down this path, it's going to be revealed that you're not actually a follower of Christ, which should cause that person to fear and that person to go, oh, really? Okay, maybe I 
to consider my sin and the Savior. I I think the second question we should ask in regard to this point is, are we as a church willing to love someone enough to talk to someone about their sin? Or, or, or just even something that they're struggling with. I mean, sometimes it's, it's easy just to ignore, like you see someone struggling, maybe someone's crying, or maybe you, you know there's a difficult thing going on in someone's marriage, and it's easy to be like, well, they'll work it out themselves. But are we willing to love people enough to say, you know what, even if it's just praying for them, like, I just want to be there to encourage them. And third, when someone sins and hurts us, even within the church here, is it our true desire that they be rescued? Come on, can we be honest? When someone does something that's really bad and really hurtful, I mean, some of us, maybe in our hearts, and I say this because I've thought this before, I don't really care what happened to them. But is that the heart of Christ here? I mean, the heart of church discipline is not, get out of our sight, we hate you. It's, I'm so sorry for you because I want you to follow Christ. And it's a desire for that person to be rescued by the Lord. So I think this definitely challenges our motives and our love for people and our courage to obey the Lord. And then, and then we're to trust God's reasons. The reason for the church is to protect the purity of the church. Look at verse 6. Your boasting, he says to the church, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here, Paul is presenting the principle of leaven. Leaven represents sin. A little leaven, a little sin will infect the whole body. This is a truism to life. We have these in our English lingo, right? One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. You know, a a person who is sick makes healthy people or can make healthy people sick, can infect healthy people, right? Hello, covid Right? And we, we separate people who are sick from people who are healthy because they might infect the, the healthy people. If there's salmonella found in a bag of lettuce, what do they do with that lettuce? Well, not just in that bag, but with the whole company. Any, any lettuce that possibly touched that lettuce that has salmonella, what do they do? They throw it all out. Why is that? Because a little bacteria can infect the whole thing, and companies lose millions of dollars because of that. And we could go on and on with illustrations. And the principle here is is true for each of us personally. It's true for our church. And that is in, in our own life, in our church life, if we allow sin to fester, then it will spread, right? A, a little, that one lustful look turns into two lustful looks and it turns into lustful thoughts, which turn into lustful imaginations and a desire to indulge the lust and it goes on from there and there and it grows. It doesn't diminish, it just grows, right? Sin that's allowed to remain is sin that's going to grow. Uh, that critical comment that we make of someone, it's, it's not just an innocent critical comment in here, it's right, we are critical about this, we're critical about that. Then we start having a negative spirit, we start having bitterness in our heart and then we become a person who's resentful, and we find ourselves in a deep, dark place of resentment. I mean, come on, have you ever experienced that? And you look back and you go, what happened? And it started with just a little comment here, a little sin here, a little problem there, and it grew. And the principle of leaven is true for us personally, but also for our church. And the warning here is that if we normalize unrepentance, if we normalize practicing sin, that it's going to spread in our church. 
And so we must obey Christ. What are we to do? Look at verse 7. So therefore, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so the argument here is that Christ has purified us from our sin. He has made his church his unleavened, his pure, his sanctified people. And he did that through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And since he's purified us, since he's made us holy, since he's forgiven us, we must pursue purity within the church. And so verse 8 He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. That's the festival of the Lord's table. That's the celebration of Christ's broken body for us and his his blood that was shed for us. Let us celebrate that festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, not with sin in our hearts, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the Lord's table is a very important time for our church because It's the time for us to examine our hearts and for us to look in our hearts and ask God, God, show me my sin. Show me if I'm living a life of unrepentance. Lord, show me if I'm truly following you. And it's a time for our congregation to come together to to examine our hearts and to see if we're living in sincerity and truth. So I think probably some questions for us to ask is, are we allowing sin to creep into our life? Like, what's that little sin that you're allowing in your life? And you excuse it and you say, it's, oh, it's no big deal. It's just, it's just one or two or three instances, just a small sin. Do, do we excuse sin? Do we think it's not a threat to us? If so, we are deceived. Do we take sin serious in our personal lives? Do we take sin serious in the church? And then last of all, What are the false ideas about church purity, church discipline? You know, when you preach on something like this, you have a lot of misconceptions. Like people, you know, read these texts, they listen to sermons like this, and they think, well, what about this, and what about that? And sometimes people come to false conclusions about church purity and church discipline. In fact, that happened to the church of Corinth here. And so there's two really false ideas that I think you find in this text that Paul addresses And the first one deals with the individual, and the next one deals with the church body. And what's the first false idea about the individual, about individual purity? Well, it's this, that you can purify the unrepentant church member through fellowship. So if you have a person who's a Christian, they say they're a Christian, but they're not living a life of repentance and faith. Well, if I just become their friend, then I can purify them. That's a false idea. Or the other part of the idea with that is, and therefore, I should stay away from unbelievers. Like, unbelievers are the bad people, and so I want to stay away from them. And, of course, that's a false idea as well he addresses. And so look at, let's look at that together. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Paul wrote, I wrote to you in my letter. That's a letter Paul wrote previously. We don't have that letter. He wrote in that letter, though, not to associate with sexually immoral people. So evidently, he wrote in some letter that... They were not, as a church, to to live in friendship and fellowship with people who are sexually immoral. He was speaking about people who claimed to be believers that lived that way, but they took it basically to say anyone, or particularly the world. They misunderstood what he was teaching, so he corrects it here. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, verse 10, 
Not at all. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That's a key phrase right there. He bears the name brother. Some translations say a so-called brother. In other words, they claim they're a brother, but they're not living like a brother. They're not living like a follower of Christ. Verse 11. But I'm writing, I'm uh, sorry, verse 11. I'll start from the beginning. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's interesting, isn't it? What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about fellowship. He's talking about friendship, frankly, right? I mean, that's what he's... Look at verse 9. He says, not to associate with, verse 11, not to associate with, verse 11, the very end, not to even eat with such a one. I mean, that's, that's friendship, right? That's fellowship. And what you see here are three categories of people. So wrap your mind around this. I don't have this in the PowerPoint, but three categories of people. First, you have a believer who's a member of a church. They're walking with the Lord. They love the Lord. You know, it's not, they're not perfect, but they're, they're a person who, who seeks to follow the Lord. They're living a life of repentance and faith. So here you have the church member who, who's following Christ. Then you have the person who claims to be a brother. They claim to be Christi- a Christian, but they're not walking with the Lord. They're living in sin. And then you have the person who's not a follower of Christ. They're an unbeliever, and they're living in sin. And so, so there you have three categories of people found in this, in this section, this, this, this passage of Scripture here. Who are we to befriend in those categories? Which, which category should we as the church of Jesus Christ, hopefully we're in this category right here, where we love the Lord, we're following the Lord, we're believers. Who are we to befriend? Well, according to this text, category number one, that's those in the church that are following and loving the Lord. Category number three, those are unbelievers. We're actually to befriend them. What's the purpose of befriending a believer that's following the Lord? Why should we do that? for mutual encouragement, for, to edify one another, right? To, to keep each other accountable. How about, what's the purpose of befriending someone in the world that doesn't follow Christ? What's the purpose of that? To give them the gospel, right? Because we want to show them Christ. We want to we tell them the good news. What about this person who, who is living a hypocritical life? They, they claim to, that Jesus is their Lord, but they don't live like Jesus is their Lord. What does he tell us to do with that person? He's saying, don't even be friends with them. Don't be in fellowship with them. And it's not that you don't call those people to come to Christ, but your life, your regular life of living is not lived in fellowship with that person. And that's the instruction here of this text. And particularly, he's talking about church discipline. And so I think that's probably the context we should think about that. But I think it does extend beyond that. We could apply it to other things. I was listening to a preacher once talk, teach on church discipline. He said there was a guy in his church that committed adultery with his wife and uh, hurt his family, hurt his wife. And this guy was unrepentant. He just didn't really care. And uh, he did not, um, he was not humble about it. He didn't confess his sin, um, but he wanted to remain in the church. And so there's a lot more to the story than that, but this was basically the gist of it. And so after, you know, talking to him individually and having other people come, eventually they removed him from church membership. And uh, later on, uh, he heard that there were some people in the church who were over this guy's house, 
and this guy was moving from one house to another. So there were people at the church that were moving uh, him, and, and there was someone that gave him a meal. And so the pastor went and talked to these individuals and said, like, why are you guys doing this? And they said, well, pastor, he has nobody in his life right now. Like, he's all by himself. It's so sad. Like, we're just trying to love him. And the pastor said, wait a second. We're trying to love him by removing that fellowship. You see, we want him to experience the pain. I mean, here he has a wife who he sinned against and his kids, and he hasn't even reconciled with them. And we want him to experience the pain of sin. And actually, the reason why we're removing fellowship from him is in love. We're doing it in love. And so sometimes people have this misunderstanding about what it means to to, to have purity in the church. And we think, well, I want to love that person, so I want to be in fellowship with them. But actually, the, the truth is, the Scripture is calling us to love them by having them experience that pain. And it's not so they will be in pain. It's so that they will repent and turn back to the Lord. What about unbelievers? What are we to do with unbelievers? Well, notice verse number 10 Verse number 11, he says, I am not, I am now, sorry, verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I'm missing my verse. Oh, verse 10, I'm, I went a verse down. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. And the truth is, a lot of people think, well, with unbelievers, I just need to stay away from them. There's actually, I think, a, a Christian, um, in the Christian culture in America believes that. A lot of people are thinking to themselves, like, I, I would like to go to a place where there's just Christians. I would like to be around just Christians. If I, if I could work at a place of employment that's just Christians, or if I could live in a, a place that's just Christians, then, then life would be a lot easier. Life would be a lot better. And I think actually it's something that Satan uses to deceive Christians. It's actually not true. Some people, I've heard this. Well, I, I was a pastor in South Carolina, so I heard this numbers of times. People would move to South Carolina with their families, and they're saying, oh, we have to get our kids out of this place so our kids will turn out right. And, and their idea is if we come to this place where there's all these people who are cultural Christians, then of course our kids will follow Christ. Can I just tell you, it's the exact opposite, Right? I mean, in that kind of context, there's a lot of apathy. And actually, being a pastor there for 14 years, I saw many of those kids fall, go away from the Lord. And it's not because of that. I'm not tying that together. I'm just saying that a lot of people say one plus one equals this, and it's actually not how it works. So what are we to do with those who are in the world that are sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, and idolaters? How do most Christians think about it? Did you see the neighbor is wearing one of those pens, rainbow pens? Like, let's not talk to them. Is that actually what the scripture calls us to do? No, it's the exact opposite, right? And it's not that we go around wearing a pen so we can win them to Christ, right? You don't become like the world to win the world. But, but maybe, maybe you should see that neighbor that's wearing that pen and be like, maybe I should invite that neighbor to go golfing with me. Why? So I can give the neighbor the gospel. Right? And you think about even like social media, and a lot of times for Christians, like social media is about saying the world is terrible. Look at all the bad things in the world. Look at all these bad people in the world. And, and truthfully, we should call out sin as, as sin and things like that. I'm not saying that. But actually, what should be the most important message we put out there? What? 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think it's what he's saying here in this text. I think probably one of the best examples of this is Jesus Christ, right? In, in Luke chapter 5, he goes, to, he goes to Levi, who is a tax collector. You know, here's a swindler, and he goes up to him, and he tells him to repent and turn and follow him, and so Levi does. He's a tax collector, and he uh, repents of that life and follows Jesus. And what does Levi do? He says, hey, let's have all the tax collectors come to my house, all my friends. Why? So we can have a meal, and I can give him the gospel. And he invites Jesus. And so Jesus is there with all these tax collectors, and the Pharisees come up, and they go, can you believe he's eating with tax collectors and sinners? And their mind was, that's so impure. And Jesus is like, no, actually, that's why I came here. And he told them, I have not come to call the righteous or people who are self-righteous like you Pharisees. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Why did Jesus have that meal with Levi and those tax collectors? To give them the gospel. That was the whole purpose. And then if you look in Luke chapter 11, there's a time where a Pharisee invites Jesus to come to his house for a meal. And so Jesus comes into this house and he goes to prepare for this meal. And he didn't wash his hands how they thought he should. And they go, you're impure. You're not following our, like, you know, system of what we think is righteous and what's not righteous. The Bible says that Jesus spoke to them. You know what he said to them? Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. And if you look in that text, it's like a number of times. Like, I don't want to count it right now, but there's like four or five times where he's like, woe to you, Pharisees, where you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. And then it says there were some other people in the group that weren't Pharisees. They were lawyers. And they said, teacher, in saying these things, you're insulting us as well. And so you know what he did? Woe to you, lawyers. <laughs> Jesus didn't mince words with this second category of people. People who said, I'm a follower of Jesus. And they lived the exact opposite. He didn't mince words. He says, woe to you. Like, you might think you're going to heaven. You're actually not. You're living like the devil and you're going to the devil's place. And the second false, I crossed it out just so we can make sure we know that's a false idea. The second false idea about church purity is the church should judge the world, but shouldn't judge each other. And these might be something you might need to go home and think about, because I, honestly, I think probably most people in the Church of Jesus Christ in America, most evangelical churches, would actually believe these are these are good ideas, right? But actually, that's ex it's the exact opposite. The church should not. This is, this is a false idea. The, church, the false idea is that the church should judge the world, but shouldn't judge each other. It's actually the exact opposite. Look down in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders or those in the world? What's the implied answer to that? Nothing. Like, and, and just think about the world, right? Because we, we, we watch TV, we read the news, we see what's going on, and there's a lot of bad things going on, right? But it shouldn't surprise us because they follow their own sinful desires. Like, that's what the world does. And so when you, when you, when you see the news, you shouldn't go, oh, can you believe sinners are sinning? No, we go, and it should shock us in that we go, that's really sad, but it shouldn't be like, I can't believe it's happening. We should expect that. That's what the world is like. We don't live in this world, though, to condemn them. We live in this world to do what? What's our purpose as the church in regard to the world? What are we doing? Giving the gospel, right? We want to give them hope. 
We want to show them that their sin does condemn them. God does condemn them, but Christ has come to save them. And then look at verse 12. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, if you were to ask this question to the average Christian in America, what would they say? Well, absolutely not. You should not judge someone within the church. But actually, that's the wrong answer. Because the implied answer is this. Yes. Is it not those inside the church who are you are to judge? And the answer is yes. The church, those in the church are to judge those in the church. That's one of the roles of the church. And so he says in verse 13, God judges the, those on the outside. There's a day when God will condemn and he will judge the final judgment, those who rejected him. What are we to do right now in regard to the church? Purge the evil person from among you, from the church. So let me just throw this out. You ever heard someone say something like, judge not, you be not judged? I said it like that, you know. But, but what, what is that actually talking about? Some people think that means you, you shouldn't judge. Did you realize that's actually not what that text is teaching? It's actually saying don't judge with hypocrisy. Because if you read on in that text, he's saying take out the, the plank out of your own eye before you take out the speck of someone else's eye. And what he's saying is he's saying don't judge with hypocrisy. He's not saying don't judge at all. What he's saying is if you're going to judge someone else, you've got to first judge yourself. And the truth is what happens when we judge ourselves, <laughs> we realize that probably what we were seeing wasn't even true or not as bad as we thought. And, or how about this one? Someone says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. What is that talking about? Again, you have the Pharisees who are living hypocritical lives. Like they're committing adultery on the side. And they put this woman in front of Jesus and say, Jesus will stone this woman for adultery. And he's saying, okay, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Like you actually are doing this on the side and you're condemning her for this. And so what Jesus was doing was he was condemning hypocrisy. And the point is that Jesus despised hypocrites who went around judging but were committing those same sins. So Jesus wasn't condemning judging, per se. Actually, 1 Corinthians 5 is an instruction that as a church we are to judge properly, with love, with care. But Jesus was actually condemning judging with hypocrisy. I knew a, a person once who really thought church discipline and that process is unloving, they thought it was a bad thing to do. What was interesting, that person at the same time thought many people in the church were hypocrites. And what you need to connect is this, and what that person needed to connect is this. The reason we do church discipline is so we don't have a church full of hypocrites, right? I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't think you want to be a hypocrite. So we need each other to be like, you know, you said this, but you're living that way. Oh, you know what? Yeah, that's hypocrisy. I don't want to live that way. Like, we need that. We need people in our life. And so the point is, is that one of the protections for the church for, from hypocrisy is church discipline. Church discipline pulls the mask off of our faces so that we can be who we truly should be before Christ. And again, I don't think this is a call for us to nitpick. It's not a call for us to go around and be like, okay, I'm going to discover all the sins in other people's lives, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 19.11, it's a glory to overlook an offense. So, I mean, there should be a sense where we love people enough that we don't nitpick everything in their life. What we're talking about is, is clear, open sin, continual um, unrepentance a person is living in, and so we're calling them to come back to Christ. 
Well, as we conclude this message, this is a lot of a lot of information, a lot of heavy things. The, the blessing for our church right now is that we're not in a time where we, we're teaching on this for a purpose. <laughs> I'm not up here because I want to announce something afterwards. Can I just tell you? That's a blessing. Amen. But it is something that probably at some point in the future, because this is the nature of the church, this, this might happen. I mean, there might be someone in here listening to me, and, and you might be living a hidden life of sin. Frankly, church, when I was in South Carolina, I had a number of times when there were people that very surprising to me came up to me or was discovered that they had been living a life of sin for a long time. Think about a, a, a missions trip I was on once with a bunch of teenagers, and I got a call on the missions trip that uh, there was two girls in the trip, and I got a call that the father had been committing adultery over the past, I think it was 15 to 20 years. It, and his, this man was a deacon in our church. So, so the point is that at some point in the future, this might be something we have to address. And so it's good for us to have this in our mind right now. But I think probably for all of us, again, coming back to really the most important question is, are we living in the light? Are we living lives of true repentance and faith? Are we committed to the spiritual health of other members of this church?